Chapter Ten of A Houseboat on the Sticks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. A Houseboat on the Sticks by John Kendrick Bangs. Chapter Ten. Storyteller's Night. It was Storyteller's Night at the houseboat, and the best talkers of Hades were impressed into the service. Dr. Johnson was made chairman of the evening. "'Put him in the chair,' said Raleigh. "'That's the only way to keep him from telling a story himself. "'If he starts in on a tale, he'll make it a serial, sure as fate. "'But if you make him the medium through which other storytellers are introduced to the club, "'he'll be finely epigrammatic. "'He can be very short and sharp when he's talking about somebody else. "'Personality is his forte.' "'Great scheme!' said Diogenes, who was chairman of the entertainment committee. "'The nights over here are long, but if Johnson started on a story, they'd have to reach twice around eternity and halfway back to give him time to finish all he had to say.' "'It's not very witty, in my judgment,' said Carlyle, who, since his arrival in the other world, had manifested some jealousy of Solomon and Dr. Johnson. "'That's true enough,' said Raleigh. "'but he's strong, and he's bound to say something "'that will put the audience in sympathy with the man that he introduces, "'and that's half the success of a storyteller's night. "'I've told stories myself. "'If your audience doesn't sympathise with you, "'you'd be better off at home putting the baby to bed.' "'And so it happened. "'Dr. Johnson was made chairman, and the evening came. "'The doctor was in great form. "'A list of the storytellers had been sent him in advance, "'and he was prepared.' The audience was about as select a one as can be found in Hades. The doors were thrown open to the friends of the members, and the smoke furnace had been filled with a very superior quality of Arcadian mixture, which Scott had brought back from a haunting trip to the home of the little minister at Thrums. "'Friends and fellow spooks,' the doctor began, when all were seated on the visionary camp-stools, which, by the way, are far superior to those in use in the world of realities, because they do not creak in the midst of a fine point, demanding absolute silence for appreciation. "'I do not know why I have been chosen to preside over this gathering of phantoms. It is the province of the presiding officer on occasions of this sort to say pleasant things, which he does not necessarily endorse, about the sundry persons who are to do the story-telling. Now, I suppose you all know me pretty well by this time. If there is anybody who doesn't, I'll be glad to have him presented after the formal work of the evening is over, and if I don't like him, I'll tell him so. You know that if I can be counted on for any one thing, it is candour, and if I hurt the feelings of any of these individuals whom I introduced tonight, I want them distinctly to understand that it is not because I love them less, but that I love truth more. With this uh, blanket apology, as it were, to cover all possible emergencies that may arise during the evening, I will begin. The first speaker on the programme, I regret to observe, is my friend Goldsmith. Affairs of this kind ought to begin with a snap, and while Oliver is a most excellent writer, as a speaker, he is a pebbleless Demosthenes. If I had the arrangement of the programme, I should have had Goldsmith tell his story while the rest of us were downstairs at supper. However, we must abide by our programme, which is unconscionably long, for otherwise we will never get through it. 
those of you who agree with me as to the pleasure of listening to my friend Goldsmith will do well to join me in the grill-room while he is speaking, where I understand there is a very fine line of punches ready to be served. Modest Noll, will you kindly inflict yourself upon the gathering, and send me word when you get through, if you ever do, so that I may return and present number two to the assembly, whoever or whatever he may be. With these words the doctor retired, and poor Goldsmith, pale with fear, rose up to speak. It was evident that he was quite as doubtful of his ability as a talker as was Johnson. "'I'm not much of a talker, or, as some say, speaker,' he said. "'Talking is not my forte, as Dr. Johnson has told you, and I'm therefore not much at it. Speaking is not in my line. I cannot speak or talk, as it were, because I am not particularly ready at the making of a speech, due partly to the fact that I'm not much of a talker anyhow, and seldom if ever speak.' I will therefore not bore you by attempting to speak, since a speech by one who, like myself, is, as you are possibly aware, not a fluent, nor in any sense an eloquent speaker, is apt to be a bore to those who will be kind enough to listen to my remarks, but will read instead the first five chapters of The Vicar of Wakefield. "'Who suggested any such night as this, anyhow?' growled Carlyle. Five chapters of the Vicar of Wakefield for a starter. Lord save us, we'll need a Vicar of Sleepfield if he's allowed to do this. I move we adjourn, said Darwin. Can't something be done to keep these younger members quiet? asked Solomon, frowning upon Carlyle and Darwin. Yes, said Douglas Gerald. Let Goldsmith go on. He'll have them asleep in ten minutes. Meanwhile Goldsmith was plodding earnestly through his stint, utterly and happily oblivious of the effect he was having upon his audience. "'This is awful,' whispered Wellington to Bonaparte. "'Worse than Waterloo,' replied the ex-emperor with a grin. "'But we can stop it in a minute. Artemis Ward told me once our camp-meeting he attended in the West broke up to go outside and see a dog-fight.' "'Can't you and I pretend to quarrel? "'A personal assault by you on me will wake these people up "'and discombobulate Goldsmith. "'Say the word, only don't eat too hard.' "'I'm with you,' said Wellington. "'Whereupon, with a great show of heat, he roared out, "'You never! "'I'm more afraid of a boy with a bean-snapper than I ever was of you!' and followed up his remark by pulling Bonaparte's camp-chair from under him, and letting the conqueror of Austerlitz fall to the floor with a thud which I have since heard described as dull and sickening. The effect was instantaneous. Compared to a personal encounter between the two great figures of Waterloo, a reading from his own works by Goldsmith seemed lacking in the elements essential to the holding of an audience. Consequently, attention was centred in the belligerent warriors, and by some odd mistake, when a peace-loving member of the assemblage, realising the indecorousness of the incident, cried out, "'Put him out! Put him out!' The attendants rushed in, and, taking poor Goldsmith by his collar, hustled him out through the door, across the deck, and tossed him ashore without reference to the gangplank. This accomplished, a personal explanation of their course was made by the quarrelling generals, and, peace having been restored, a committee was sent in search of Goldsmith with suitable apologies. The good and kindly soul returned, but having lost his book in the melee, 
much to his own gratification as well as to that of the audience, he was permitted to rest in quiet the balance of the evening. "'Is he through?' said Johnson, poking his head in at the door when order was restored. "'Yes, sir,' said Boswell. "'That is to say, he has retired permanently from the field. He didn't finish, though.' "'Fellow spooks,' began Johnson once more. "'Now that you have been delighted with the honeyed eloquence of the last speaker, "'it is my privilege to present to you that eminent fabulist Baron Munchausen, "'the greatest unrealist of all time, "'who will give you an exhibition of his paradoxical power of lying while standing.' "'The applause which greeted the Baron was deafening. "'He was beyond all doubt one of the most popular members of the club.' "'Speaking of whales,' said he, leaning gracefully against the table. "'Nobody has mentioned them,' said Johnson. "'True,' retorted the Baron. "'But you always suggest them by your apparently unquenchable thirst for spouting. "'Speaking of whales, my friend Jonah, as well as the rest of you, "'may be interested to know that I once had an experience similar to his own, "'and... "'Strange to say, with the identical veil.' Jonah rose from his seat in the back of the room. "'I do not wish to be unpleasant,' he said, with a strong effort to be calm. "'But I wish to know if Judge Blexton is in the room.' "'I am,' said the judge, rising. "'What can I do for you?' "'I desire to apply for an injunction restraining the Baron from using my whale in his story. "'That whale, Your Honour, is copyrighted,' said Jonah. "'If I had any other claim to the affection of mankind than the one which is based on my experience with that leviathan, I would willingly permit the Baron to introduce him into his story. But that whale, Your Honour, is my stock in trade.' He is my all. I think Jonah's point is well taken, said Blexton, turning to the Baron. It would be a distinct hardship, I think, if the plaintiff in this action were to be deprived of the exclusive use of his sole accessory. The injunction prayed for is therefore granted. The court would suggest, however, that the Baron continue his story using another whale for the purpose. It is impossible, said Munchausen gloomily. "'The whole point of the story depends upon it having been Jonah's whale. "'Under the circumstances, the only thing I can do is to sit down. "'I regret the narrowness of mind exhibited by my friend Jonah, "'but I must respect the decision of the court.' "'I must take exception to the Baron's allusion to my narrowness of mind,' "'said Jonah with some show of heat.' I am simply defending my rights, and I intend to continue to do so if the whole world unites in considering my mind a mere slot scarcely wide enough for the insertion of a nickel. That whale was my discovery, and the personal discomfort I endured in perfecting my experience was such that I resolved to rest my reputation upon his broad proportions only, to sink or swim with him and I cannot at this late day permit another to crowd me out of his exclusive use. Jonah sat down and fanned himself, and the Baron, with a look of disgust on his face, left the room. Up to his old tricks, he growled as he went. He queers everything he goes into. 
If I'd known he was a member of this club, I'd never have joined. We do not appear to be progressing very rapidly, said Dr. Johnson, rising. So far we have made two efforts to have stories told, and have met with disaster each time. I don't know but what you are to be congratulated, however, on your escape. Very few of you, I observe, have as yet fallen asleep. The next number on the programme, I see, is Boswell, who was to have entertained you with a few reminiscences. I say was to have done so, because he is not to do so. I'm ready, said Boswell, rising. No doubt, retorted Johnson severely, but I am not. You are a man with one subject, myself. I admit it's a good subject, but you are not the man to treat of it here. You may suffice for mortals, but here it is different. I can speak for myself. You can go out and sit on the banks of the vitriol reservoir and lecture to the imps if you want to, but when it comes to reminiscences of me, I'm on deck myself, and I flatter myself I remember what I said and did more accurately than you do. Therefore, gentlemen, instead of listening to Boswell at this point, you will kindly excuse him and listen to me. <clears throat> when I was a boy... Excuse me, said Solomon, rising. About how long is this... Ah... Uh, this entertaining discourse of yours to continue. Until I get through, returned Johnson wrathfully. Are you aware, sir, that I am on the programme? asked Solomon. I am, said the doctor. With that in mind, for the sake of our fellow spooks who are present, I am very much inclined to keep on forever. When I was a boy, Carlyle rose up at this point. I should like to ask, he said mildly, if this is supposed to be an audience of children. I, for one, have no wish to listen to the juvenile stories of Dr. Johnson. Furthermore, I have come here particularly tonight to hear Boswell. I want to compare him with Froude. I therefore protest against— There is a roof to this houseboat, said Dr. Johnson. If Mr. Carlyle will retire to the roof with Boswell, I have no doubt that he can be accommodated. As for Solomon's interruption, I can afford to pass that over with the silent contempt it deserves, though I may add with propriety that I consider his most famous proverbs the most absurd bits of hack-work I ever encountered, and as for that story about dividing a baby between two mothers by splitting it in two— it was grossly inhuman unless the baby was twins. When I was a boy. As the doctor proceeded, Carlyle and Solomon, accompanied by the now angry Boswell, left the room, and my account of the storyteller's night must perforce stop, because, though I have never heretofore confessed it, all my information concerning the houseboat on the sticks has been derived from the memoranda of Boswell. It may be interesting to the reader to learn, however, that according to Boswell's account, the storyteller's night was never finished, but whether this means that it broke up immediately afterwards in a riot, or that Dr. Johnson is still at work detailing his reminiscences, I am not aware, and I cannot at the moment of writing ascertain, for Boswell, when I have the pleasure of meeting him, 
invariably avoids the subject. End of chapter 10